Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's Benefits Compliance team, and we're here on the podcast to break down benefits compliance-related issues. A lot of our podcasts in the past have been focused on the ACA and changes that may occur to that. And today, we're going to continue kind of with that theme, talking about the ACA's impact on the individual market We're going to look at a few recent studies that uh, break that down a little bit. And the reason we're going to be talking about this today is because any legislation that we might see going through uh, our government this year is likely focused on stabilization of the individual market. We've talked about this in the past, how there's sort of an ecosystem where the individual market could impact the group market. Uh, But Suzanne, lead us off here. Explain to us a little bit what uh, what we're going to be talking about. So here we are eight years after the enactment of the ACA, and what we've seen is enrollment in the individual market has declined. Uh, The number of small employers offering health benefits to workers has dropped from 24% or by 24% between 2012 and 2016. Um, That's according to a McKinsey study. And uh, according to HHS itself, Premiums for the individual coverage have more than doubled from 2013 to 2017, and they rose again uh, this year. So we're going to focus today on a recent study that was done by the Heritage Foundation, which is admittedly has conservative views, but uses um, as a background uh, some information from HHS and from Milliman and so forth, and look at why the individual market is reacting in this manner. So it looks at the various regulatory uh, restrictions under the ACA and how they contributed to the premium increases in the individual market. In some cases, there was a very direct impact. In other cases, it was more indirect. Um, So we're going to just kind of dive into that today and then talk about, of course, uh, what Congress is intending to do about it. Great. Um, Suzanne, should we go with the summary first and then we'll jump into some of the details of the study? Yeah, let's, let's talk about the summary first, but do wait for the details because they're important and it really breaks it down further. But much of the premium increase resulted from new regulations, as I just mentioned, some of which were, for example, the essential health benefits mandate and the requirement for the minimum essential coverage to be of a certain actuarial value. Those certainly had a very direct impact on premiums. Then there were a host of other regulations, such as prohibiting insurers from rating based on health status, which we call medical underwriting, guarantee issue, a ban on pre-existing condition exclusions, and those had a large impact on premiums, um, a bit more indirect. Uh, And then we had uh, that an insurer couldn't price products based on, um, you know, based on things such as certain age bans, uh, such gender rating, for example, And all of this had an effect on driving some individuals into a subsidized individual market. And we'll explore that as well as some other um, impact of other regulations that did drive those individuals also into a subsidized market. All right. So that all seems logical to me. You're requiring carriers plans to cover or not cover certain things and all that's going to drive up prices. Uh, but let's start with something uh, fairly straightforward from the ACA, the effect of new taxes on insurance carriers. Yeah, that's the easiest one to determine its impact. So the actuarial firm Milliman projected that in 2014, for example, the the taxes and the fees would increase premiums by about 4.4%. 
Um, some have estimated in hindsight that it was actually less than that, in part because the premiums rose, so the percentage of the tax impact was less. Um, and this includes looking at the health insurance tax, which we call the HIT tax, and then also the user fees that are state and federal fees um, that were attached to products that were sold through the exchange. So again, so let's start there. 4.4, around 4%, maybe 3.5% um, impact on premiums. You will see that each of these have a, uh, a, a, a small amount of impact, but obviously when aggregated together, the impact can be quite enormous. Right. Well, well, we're all very excited when we get a 4.4% 4, 4. pay increase. Right. So <laughs> Let's me, put it in our... <laughs> it, it does seem uh, significant to me, but that we're just getting started here. What uh, what That's 4% of the premium increase due to taxes and fees. What about the coverage mandates? So let's start with those essential health benefits, which applies only in the individual and the small group market. And that stated that um, you know these, these plans had to cover certain benefits and Milliman's study estimated that the average premium increase attributable to that new coverage was between 3 and 17%. Now you say, why is there such a variance there? Well, it's really state dependent. Some states already had pretty extensive mandates. So in those cases, the premiums, uh, the increase was less. Um, and then in other states, they had much lighter mandates. And so adding on the essential health benefit mandate really drove up the premiums more in those states. So the projection was between 3 and 17%. And then when they've come back and HHS did a retrospective study on essential health benefits, they found roughly about the same percentage increase, again, depending on which state we were in. So we now then move on to, for example, like the preventive requirement. And that's the requirement that you cover certain preventive services at zero cost sharing. The impact there, again, could be determined fairly directly, and it was estimated by HHS to be about 1.5%. Not a huge impact, but when you add it on to the others we've talked about so far, every incremental impact obviously obviously makes a difference. Right. Then we look to, for example, the actuarial value requirement. So if you remember, this is the requirement to effectively place a floor on certain plans as to what the plan would pay towards the cost of coverage. In the exchange, there are four metal tiers. There's the bronze, the silver, the gold, and the platinum with the varying actuarial values of between 60% and 90%. Um, and just to give you some background, one study estimated that about 50% of the pre-ACA individual plans were less than that 60% actuarial value. So prior to the ACA, the individual market, about half the plans were not as rich as what were going to be required post-ACA. So obviously, when you're requiring a, a carrier to cover more of the cost of coverage, the prices will increase. Again, this varied by state. So keep in mind when you hear you know, of recent proposals in Congress that allow um, the sale of a copper plan, which is going to be a plan that meets an, an actuarial value of about 50%. Prior to the ACA, the majority of those plans that were less than, than a 60% actuarial va uh, value plan were in that 50 to 59% range. So a copper plan is really trying to hit that market. So that really kind of allows a plan to be offered in the market that was closer to what was offered in some individual markets previously. Okay, Suzanne. So copper plans, we're trying to go back a little bit to pre-ACA, maybe get in that range 50 to 59%. Uh, but we do have these market restrictions uh, on ratings based on gender. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Yes. So there's, so the ACA did prohibit uh, a carrier to underwrite based on gender. And as we all know, um, obviously women have a greater impact on, on coverage during the earlier years, during the years in which they could get pregnant, for example. And then men, we tend to see some um, variances as they get older. Uh, if you, if you did, were allowing uh, rating based on age. What's interesting is to look at the impact of the lack of the carrier's ability to rate based on gender, how it affected premiums, and then how it impacted enrollment of those based on gender. So while the ACA's prohibition on varying rates based on gender reduced premiums for middle-aged women, it doesn't appear to have resulted in a meaningful higher enrollment for women in that age group. However, you when you look at how it impacted males, premiums increased for middle-aged ma- males Um and there was actually a lower enrollment for men in that category. So they think that it could be partially attributed to this lack of the ability of carriers to um, rate based on gender and the impact that it had on premiums for that age group. So, it, it, you know, it's interesting to see how that affected um, that uninsured population. Right. And those are the effects of the uh, restrictions on gender. What about the restrictions on age with respect to rating? So the ACA imposed an age band rating of three to one percent, meaning that the carriers couldn't have a, a you know the ability to have a greater than three to one variance based on age, and what that did is it increased premiums for younger adults by about one third, while reducing premiums for the pre-retirement aged adults, those between fifty and sixty-four uh, years old, by about ten percent to fifteen percent. So. The problem with this is while younger adults tend to be healthier, they also tend to earn less money than older workers. And so the impact of increasing their rates um, is they're more sensitive to changes in the price variations. And so they're more likely to decline coverage if it becomes more expensive because they're healthier. They think they don't need it. They're young and invincible. And so to the extent that the ACA's rate compression made the premiums more attractive to the older adults and less attractive to the younger adults, uh, we saw kind of a, a skew or a change in the risk composition or the risk pool composition of the market, um, which in turn forced insurers to raise premiums across the board because it attracted more older individuals in there than it did the younger individuals. Right. So what do you think, Suzanne, had the greatest impact here on rates? So, and and let me back up for just a moment. When I'm talking about the impact of the you know, the age band rating and the gender, we don't really have direct impact results that we can say how that impacted the premiums. We know that it did. We just can't say directly that was a certain percentage of increase. Um, But if we look to what really had the biggest impact on uh, on, uh, premium increases, it likely came from insurers being required to cover people without medical underwriting and requiring guarantee issue. So generally, insurers had to cover anyone who walked in the door and had to do so without any knowledge of the risk that they were taking on. So imagine that. You're, you're going out to market. You're going to sell your product in the market. You have no idea what the cost of, of, of that product is, so you don't know how to establish the price for it in the market. It's the same thing here. The carriers don't know how much money they will be spending to cover these individuals, so they have to increase that price so that there won't be a loss. Um, and so the thought was that that individual mandate would help uh, result in everyone walking in the door and getting coverage. So regardless of your health status, they thought that individual mandate, the, the potential that you would have to pay a tax 
would force people to go ahead and buy coverage, even if they were healthy, and that would get everybody in the door. The carriers would get as many healthy people as sick people. But the reality is that Congress limited the tax penalty associated with the individual mandate. So many healthy people just chose to remain uninsured. It wasn't enough of a of an impact on them. And they looked at likely not having a, you know, a healthy, they were healthy, they didn't weren't going to have a lot of medical costs. And so therefore, they chose to remain uninsured. Right. A, a tax penalty of a couple hundred dollars is very small compared to the cost it would have taken for uh, someone to enroll in coverage, a couple thousand dollars or more. So yeah, you can see the choice, uh, young, someone who's young and didn't and healthy and didn't want to uh, spend the money to on the health insurance, they would just pay the penalty if it was even being enforced, right? That's correct. And it, it's hard to say. There, what The studies did not really identify the direct impact of this. Um, there clearly was a change, again, in the risk pool composition because you had sicker people uh, wanting coverage and healthier people staying out of the game. Um, so it was difficult to, to really identify what impact this had on the premium rates. Um, but there were some studies that looked into it on a state basis. And so, for example... Um, the overall effect of these items based on a comparison of premiums for a 40-year-old male in 2000, between 2013 and 2017, again, this varied by state, but Milliman looked at it by state. And for example, in Ohio, they estimated that it accounted for a 41% to 50% in, uh, of the increase in the premiums, which was identified as a 159% increase in Ohio in premiums. They're saying that around 50% of that increase was due to these items. Hmm. Um, and then if you look at Tennessee, which apparently they had a 319% increase in premiums over that period of over that period of time, which is just an unimaginable. But they're saying that these items actually accounted for about 75% of that increase. So clearly these had the biggest impact on the premium rates increases um, across the board. All right. That is significant. Um, you mentioned there were other factors. Can you speak to those at all? Well, some of the other factors, um, certainly the ones we just discussed, showed that the health insurance became more attractive to sick individuals and less attractive to healthy individuals. So that skewed the risk pool um, more. Um, but it was aggravated even more by allowing older and sicker individuals to shift into the exchange from uh, due to the subsidies that were available and away from employer-sponsored care or away from the high-risk pools. So let's focus first on the high-risk pools. If you remember, the ACA created temporary high-risk pools, but those ended in 2014. And so there was an influx of about 340,000 enrollees that had previously been in high-risk pools that shifted into the exchange. That's obviously going to have an impact bringing all of those sick individuals in. Right. And then, high, high risk enrollees are definitely going to be sick and expensive. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And they knew that going in, but but still they thought it would it would help uh the, you know that pool would still be evened out by all the healthy individuals they anticipated coming in right. due to the individual mandate. And then secondly, we had Congress come out and say that um if you remember the subsidies are only available for those individuals who were not offered employer sponsored coverage. And they came out and said, well, if you're not, if you're offered COBRA, but you don't enroll, you can still go into the exchange and receive a subsidy. So what we saw was that influx of individuals coming into the exchange instead of remaining in employer-sponsored coverage because the subsidies were available, were available, many of those being older, sicker individuals now also coming into the exchange. So we talked about the risk composition, the risk pool composition changing 
uh, previously, this just aggravated that composition change even greater. There are other issues included in the study, Suzanne, which we don't have time to get very far on today. But what is being done from a policy perspective to address all of this? So let's take a step back. As we walk through these items today, what we saw were that some regulations, such as the the taxes and the fees, um, the actuarial value limits, the essential health benefit mandates, they all had a measurable and direct effect on the premiums. And then there were other regulations like the age band rating, the um, lack of the ability to underwrite based on gender. Those had kind of an indirect effect. Um, And then the main contributors were the prohibition on medical underwriting, the requiring to cover pre-existing medical conditions. um, And those definitely had the most impact on premiums. And those were then aggravated by the change in the pool composition that, you know, such as allowing those early retirees to migrate from employer-sponsored coverage onto the exchanges, and then the elimination of the high-risk pools that forced all of those with chronic medical conditions to obtain coverage through the exchanges. So the net result of all of that was that there was a change in the risk pool composition so that we had older and sicker individuals in the individual market exchanges. And that forced insurers to raise their premiums. So I say all that as a backdrop. So what are we trying to change with all of that and impact with all of that? Well, for a portion of it, and we've uh, certainly addressed this on prior podcasts, we have Senators Graham and Cassidy that have proposed legislation that would have consolidated several ACA funding streams into a program of grants to states. And so in conjunction with that funding, the legislation would then give states more uh, flexibility over how they regulated their insurance market. So they would allow the states to take some innovative approaches um, so if they felt like they could make their markets um, function in a better way. So, for example, they could receive funding and which would not be bound by the requirement to have essential health benefits or those actuarial val- uh, value limits or you know, the age ban rating. What's important is what we saw was when there was a discussion around eliminating the pre-existing condition exclusions, there was a lot of political backlash. And so while we may see them allow at least one plan on the market that would have medical underwriting, um, I don't anticipate any state taking the approach that they would drop it altogether. So they could allow, such as Idaho, allow one plan in there as long as there were other ACA plans that had no medical underwriting. So I don't anticipate a broad change in medical underwriting, which as we talked about was really had the biggest impact, but we may see an option of an additional plan being offered. But if we go back to the Graham-Cassidy proposal, because that's you know the one that we have that's really out there currently Um, It would permit the states to use block grants to subsidize the coverage for pools for individuals that were high risk. So we talked about how the the high risk pools were eliminated. You had that influx of chronic condition patients into the exchanges. This could certainly help bring those patients back out, those enrollees back out, to help stabilize that risk pool composition in the individual market. Um, And so, again, we could also see just more flexibility in how states would structure their risk mitigation program, whether it was through reinsurance, through high risk pools, risk adjustment, you know, all of these approaches I'm sure we'll hear more about in the coming year as they look for ways to stabilize uh, that market. 
Right. So perhaps states getting a little bit more creative. And that's an important point because so much of the ACA, obviously ACA is a federal law um, that impacts states, but um, just perhaps that idea of states stepping in, coming up with their own rules. Uh, we've talked about states perhaps, or we've heard about states perhaps uh, implementing their own individual mandates in the state. So that could have an impact. Uh, but just so many moving parts here when we're talking about what could be causing premiums to go up in the individual market. Um, overall, the healthcare delivery system insurance is all, all has so many moving parts that it's really hard to fully understand where the impacts are. But thanks for breaking down this study for us. I think it helps explain where uh, some of the bigger impacts might be coming from as a result of the ACA. So um, we've talked a little bit about the impact on individual market. To uh, sum up here at the end, Suzanne, what does all this mean for the employer group market? Right. And we talk about this on multiple podcasts. The reason why um, we focus on the individual market and the stabilization of it, even though our clients are employer-based primarily, is because the, the we need a stable individual market um, to aid in the stabilization of the employer market. The employer market is very strong, very stable. But if you end up having a large uninsured population due to an unstable individual market that sees premium rates increase ongoing, then what you have is unsubsidized care in the hospitals, for example, or through providers. And that cost gets shifted onto the employer-sponsored market. That's one impact. Another impact could be that if, as long as we have an unstable individual market, you'll see greater calling out for government to step in and fix it. Um, that could lead to the idea of a single-payer system, which obviously there's uh, some people who support. Uh, we're not, you know, we, we tend to believe that that's not the best approach. Um, but uh, anytime you're going to have greater government intrusion in one market, it could certainly bleed into government intrusion in the employer-sponsored market, which we don't want to see. Again, it's a stable market. We want it to continue. So that's why we focus on how do we get this individual market stabilized so its impact won't bleed over into the employer-sponsored market. Right. Seems like such a fragile ecosystem of different markets. But uh, thanks again, Suzanne, for breaking this all down for us today. And as we like to say on the podcast, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you.